focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters Han Dan and Son Mian. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Hello. All right, uh, we're going to start things off with uh, what's been the top story all throughout this week here. Uh, the ongoing nationwide strike uh, this staged by the unionized uh, truckers. Uh, it has already been a week since they began this strike and as the walkout continues to cause massive logistics and supply disruptions the truckers and the government again uh sitting down for talks this for the second time here this after uh, this week uh they held the talks earlier this afternoon um again the consensus was that the two sides were going to have very difficult time uh i guess uh, closing the gaps in their differences here uh but uh obviously uh, we could uh, remain optimistic here tana can you tell us how the talks went today well, as widely expected, there was no breakthrough. The meeting ended in just 40 minutes, only confirming their wide differences. A ministry official at the Transport Ministry told reporters after the meeting that the government has urged truckers to return to work as the strikes are causing immense damage nationwide, while Kim Taehyung, representing the trucker side, put the blame on the government, saying the government is unwilling to negotiate, so the negotiations couldn't prevent proceed any further. And this was the second round of talks following the first one just two days ago. But both sides didn't budge an inch from their previous stance. The truckers are demanding a guarantee of permanent minimum freight rates and its expansion to different types of trucks and items now limited to containers and cement. They're demanding application of the minimum freight rate system to items like automobiles and steel as well. The government, however, stuck to its stance that a three-year expansion, extension rather, of the minimum freight rate system is possible, but it's impossible to make it permanent or to expand it to other items. Uh, Mian will get to the details in a bit, but um, the government's administrative order issued yesterday that forces some 2,500 truckers in the cement industry to get back to work immediately is also adding to their conflict. The order was enforced for the first time since it was introduced 18 years ago, and the unprecedented move comes as cement supply disruptions halted constructions across the country. It looks like we're in for a prolonged strike as the government is now mulling to expand the administrative order to other items as well. Yeah, and uh, we knew that this was going to be a pretty fierce fight uh, moving forward here. Who is going to step down first is the big question here. But Don, uh, the logistics and supply disruptions, again, as we've been talking about, as the strike gets prolonged every day, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Again, we are now on the seventh day of the strike. Uh, how's the situation like now? Well, first of all, container movements at Korea's 12 major ports dropped to 37% of normal operations. According to the Transport Ministry, ports in Gwangyang and Ulsan saw severe service disruptions, while movements in Busan port were partially recovered from yesterday. But still, Busan Port is also seeing operation rates significantly lower than the normal levels. The cement industry particularly uh, was hit hard with production of ready-mixed concrete 
plunging to just 8% of normal levels. Only around 20,000 tons or 11% of the normal amount of cement are now being transported. Some 580 out of 985 construction sites were affected by cement supply disruption. That's nearly 60% of the nation's total number of construction sites. Oil refiners are also bracing for the worst-case scenario, with some gas stations already reporting supply shortages. According to various reports, over 20 gas stations across the country have run out of gasoline and diesel or are experiencing supply disruptions as of 4 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, The Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy said it's using all possible means to supply gasoline to those suffering shortages within 12 hours of their shortage calls. More information can be found on OpenET, uh, that's O-P-I-N-E-T dot C-O dot K-E-R. And I strongly recommend our listeners to get a check of uh, the current situation, because especially if you're driving here around the capital, already we're, we're, we're hearing reports of more than a dozen gas stations here in Seoul alone uh, reporting shortage of supply. Now, according to the government, some 7,000 truckers, or about 32 percent of the unionized members, are taking part in the strike similar to the level seen during the past week. Yeah, that's actually yeah, it's a good point you made with the uh, the drivers because uh, one of the th- I, I actually f- uh, filled up uh, today earlier on right before I got to Arirang and uh, there's been a line of cars that are filling up because again, uh, some of these gas stations, uh, they have no idea when they're going to be able to get their supply of uh, fuel moving forward here. So it's a lot of these cars, I mean, they're preparing for it. I mean, it, it, I mean, my car was like almost empty, so I filled up. But a lot of the cars they were saying is that they're not, you know, they're not even half uh, half empty and they're still filling up right now just in case uh, with the weekend coming up here uh, what we also uh, heard yesterday and uh, we did expect this to happen is President Yoon Sagyar issuing this return to work executive order for those refusing to transport goods in the cement sector as uh, Tan previously mentioned this seems like right now this sector is where it's hit the worst right now uh, which is why the executive order has been pushed here we could potentially see other executive orders in other uh, sectors as well what happens now with this issuance of the executive order you have more on this Mian. Yes, so the order was approved yesterday in a cabinet meeting targeting about 2,500 drivers of cement trucks among a broader group of truckers participating in the walkout. So just to highlight how severe the current situation is, um, the strike-busting decision marked the first time a South Korean administration issued an order to force striking transport workers back to their jobs, as we discussed. And the government has delivered the executive order via mail to three truck drivers, which is about 12% of 2005 drivers subject to the order. And we have mentioned that this will likely to expand to other items as well. Now, the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport said that it will continue serving the orders to the rest of the truckers. However, this involves some troublesome work because the ministry first has to conduct an on-site investigation to gather personal information about drivers to deliver this executive order via mail. 
this executive order must be in principle sent via mail only. So if the mail delivery fails, it will be attempted two or three times and finally returned to the sender. Now, this mail delivery process will take about five days and the ministry intends to repeat the delivery attempt cycle twice at least. Now, only when efforts to send the order via mail have been made, the government can turn to the last resort of conveyance by public announcement. For those of you who are not familiar with the term conveyance by the public announcement, so this is a system in which the government publishes the contents of the order in the official gazette or daily newspaper for a certain period of time, and then it is regarded as directly delivered to the party concerned. Now, transportation workers who have received the order must return by midnight the next day, and if they refuse to do so, they will face cancellation of their licenses and three years in jail or a fine of up to 30 million won. Despite facing the threat of the licensing or even prison terms, the strikes organizers said they would defy the order and accuse Yoon's conservative government of ignoring what they describe as worsening work conditions and financial strains caused by by rising fuel costs and interest rates. Now, it seems the strikers will not back down easily, and likewise, the government is firm on its stance that if transport operators and transport workers in the cement sector do not return to work without justifiable reasons, they will be subject to sanction prescribed by law. Yeah, and so there is a specific reason as to why they're actually sending by mail here, because initially what they said was they were going to issue this executive order either by uh, text message or by Kakao uh, talk as well. But the loophole with that was uh, they were saying they're probably going to turn off their phones, right? So that they can, they can easily say, well, we didn't get it. Okay, so that's kind of like the loophole is if they didn't get it, then they haven't issued the executive order. And so they were saying like uh, some of the strikers are saying, you know, turn off your phones and things like that. Make sure you don't get this executive order. So when they do the mail system, you have to sign for it. Right. But then the other thing is, if you're not home or if nobody's home and no one signs for this, then you don't get it. Which then, as Mian mentioned, the very last thing is they're going to you know take it to the newspaper and there's the official announcement. And now uh, this this is going to be pretty big because... Uh, how the cement truckers are going to respond to this is also going to lead to other strikers as well. If the cement truckers decide they're going to still stay put and say, you know what, you guys uh, issued this executive order, but we're still going to strike, there's a very good chance that other truckers are going to continue their strike as well. Of course, also another thing that we mentioned yesterday, we've been seeing a slew of uh, strikes happening here in the country. Now, this isn't only here in South Korea. A lot of other countries around the world are going through the same thing. This time, unionized workers at the Seoul Metro launching their strike early this morning, uh, demanding the management to withdraw its layoff plans here. Don, let's get the latest on that strike. To give our listeners a clear background, the Seoul Metro runs subway lines number one to eight and the second and third segments of line number nine. And the strike launch today are impacting lines number one, one, one through to eight. As the Seoul City injected over 13,000 workers to replace the unionized, participating unionized members, there was no massive chaos during the rush hours this morning. Citizens saw only about five to ten minutes of delay for line number one, while there were no particular service disruptions for line numbers two to eight. Uh, but less number of replacement workers were on duty in the afternoon, and so the subway operation rate was lower to around 70 percent. 
20% of normal levels in the afternoon. And that was also the case for the evening hours. And so we're expecting around 85% level uh, during the evening rush hours, which is right about now mm -hmm. uh, to around 8 p.m., right? The Seoul City has also increased bus operations, providing additional services during the morning and evening rush hours to minimize the fallout. Workers and the management held talks for over eight hours yesterday, but failed to meet halfway. Unions are demanding a withdrawal of the Seoul Metro's layoff plan, while operators say... A one-year delay of the plan is the best they can offer. The Seoul Metro plans to downsize its workforce by more than 1,500 employees through 2026. I mean, uh, we're probably going to be talking about, uh, uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about, but KEPCO, we've been talking about for the longest time. KEPCO has been bleeding. Uh, you know, they've been in deficit for a really long time. And Seoul Metro is actually another uh, that's been losing out, I, except for, I believe, line number two is might be the only line that's not seeing uh, a deficit, but uh, which is why Seoul Metro has been kind of uh, looking into uh, laying off its workforce. Again, by 1,500 employees, that's actually a quite a significant uh, layoff here. But at least on the flip, good news is compared to the truckers union strike, when the Seoul Metro, there's a strike, uh, there's not much of an impact. Uh, not to say the message hasn't been sent by the, uh, the strikers there. Hopefully, uh, there is some kind of... Uh, I guess, uh, you know, agreement in place in the near future. Uh, let's talk about uh, politics this time. Uh, this has been uh, one of the big issues uh, in the past month. Now, the uh, main opposition Democratic Party of Korea yet again pushing strongly for the dismissal of uh, the Interior and Safety Minister Lee Sang-min over the 1029 E21 tragedy. Uh, how did the discussion to submit a motion to the parliament seeking the dismissal go today by the uh, DPS? Uh, Mian, you have more on this. Yes. So during the meeting this morning, the Democratic Party briefed its party's lawmakers on a plan regarding the motion calling for the sacking of Minister Lee and passed the motion during the party's high-level strategic meeting today. Now, the motion, however, is not legally binding and President Yoon has no obligation to act on the motion. But the Democratic Party has threatened to impeach Minister Lee if President Yoon exercises his veto power. But even even if lawmakers decide to pass an impeachment motion, for example, uh, there is no guarantee that Minister Lee would be removed from office. If the Democratic Party was to push the impeachment motion, and this is passed by the National Assembly, the case is then referred to the Constitutional Court for a final decision. Uh, now, in response, the opposition party, the People Power Party, is considering boycotting the Assembly probe in protest against what it says is un acceptable demand from the Democratic Party over the Taiwan tragedy, where the Democratic Party's move is a political maneuvering. To some extent, it is very pity to see both parties stand against each other so firmly when both parties should join efforts to discover what went wrong with the country's disasters prevention and safety system. Now, meanwhile, Minister Lee said during the meeting of the Center Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters that a dedicated task force to support the establishment of the bereaved family council and commemorative projects will be take will take place accordingly. 
Many experts have pointed out that the public will become infuriated further if the ruling and opposition camps continue to engage in a blame game over the case on the dismissal of Minister Lee without making genuine efforts to establish a better disaster prevention and response system. Yeah, just a quick correction. I think you meant the ruling party, People Power Party there. But um, this has been the big uh, criticism by the people, right? And and uh, uh, something that we talked about with Professor uh, Knowles yesterday on our issue now is that while this uh, joint uh, parliamentary investigative uh, committee, it's aimed at trying to find an answer uh, to what when ha- what happened in Itaewon uh, just over uh, a month ago, this has become more of a political rift uh, between the two. But I mean, it is interesting, though, because, again, like you said, you know, President Yoon actually has no obligation to uh, act on the motion. And so the consensus is that because, you know, they've known each other before, uh, you know, they went to the same school and things like that. And so uh, they're saying, well, President Yoon is probably going to protect them as much as possible but on the flip side it's also going to impact his approval rating and the party's approval rating and so are the PPP uh, able to kind of take in this criticism by the public uh, and uh, not removing uh, Lee Sang-min from office here but again the biggest tragedy uh, out of this is the fact that there is no answer coming out there is no proper investigation coming out and just uh, a political rift and just the back and forth of uh, just political fighting uh, that's going on and it really is unfortunate here uh, the government also uh, unveiling a roadmap this to lower South Korea's relatively high rate of serious industrial accidents today uh, this aiming to lower the figure to levels of the OECD average uh, Talon, give us uh, some of the key points there. Sure. So the big framework is this, to shift the focus of the workplace safety policy from the current restriction and punishment-centered policy to a one that's centered on self-regulation and prevention. So what this means is that if previous measures placed more importance on punishing those responsible after the accidents occurred, the new measures will focus on preventing fatal accidents by inducing voluntary safety checkups. And in order to realize this, the roadmap lays out 14 core tasks that include establishing a preventive system based on risk assessments, expanding support for small and mid-sized firms, as well as risk-prone industries, and raising awareness in safety issues among workers. Now, the key point here is the risk assessment. Based on the government's new guidelines, the labor and the management together will be obligated to find and improve hazardous risks to create their own safety regulatory system. So when serious accidents occur, the government will consider these prevention efforts in assessing their accountability, and such efforts will be taken into account in the process of investigation uh, or a trial uh, if an if an accident occurs. So they're hoping to hoping these kind of measures will induce more voluntary efforts to create their own uh, safety regulatory system. And the government plans to amend related laws as well, including the Serious Accidents Punishment Act accordingly. High-tech safety equipment uh, such as AI cameras and fall protection clothing will also be provided to construction and manufacturing sectors. The government will also expand the mandatory establishment of an occupational safety committee with workers' participation from companies with 100 or more employees to companies with 30 or more employees. And through these new set of measures, the government aims to reduce 
fatal industrial accidents to the levels of the uh, OECD average by 2026. Which is a little bit concerned when it's uh, voluntary safety checkups and uh, not uh, something that you must do. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this we have been seeing a lot of uh, industrial accidents as of late. And uh, yeah, definitely something that figures that uh, really needs to uh, go down. Uh, well, let's move on to other issues. Uh, yesterday, the Pentagon having released its annual report to Congress on military and security developments involving uh, People's Republic of China, uh, commonly known as the China military power report. Uh, let's get some key takeaways from this uh, latest uh, report here. Mian, you have more. Yes. Yeah, so as we said, the U.S. Department of Defense publishes a report every year on military and security developments involving the People's Republic of China and offers Congress insight into Beijing's ambitions and intentions. To share a few highlights of this report and to give you some key numbers, uh, China now has more than 400 nuclear warheads approximately doubling its nuclear arsenal in just two years. The pace of China's accelerating nuclear expansion may enable Beijing to field a stockpile of about 1,500 warheads by 2035. Now, China has already conducted 135 ballistic missile tests in 2021, the report said, which is more than the rest of the world combined. Furthermore, China has a standing army of nearly one million soldiers, the largest navy in the world by numbers of ships, and the third largest air force in the world, according to the report. The 174 pages long report considers China as the most consequential and systemic challenge to U.S. national security. Uh, the report is primarily a discussion of the military aspects of China, and it offers new insights into how the People's Liberation Army views the future of warfare. The report covers some interesting sides about the strategic thinking of Chinese leaders in strategic stability as well. In addition to the development of China's warfare capabilities, the report also highlights some of the elements of China's economic policy and foreign policy and how these all kind of fit together with the military and defense modernization in pursuit of its regional and global ambitions. The report is available on the U.S. Department of Defense website for anyone who is interested in knowing more about China's military and security developments. Yeah, and oftentimes they use this report to kind of push the Congress uh, to set up a bigger budget for defense. And uh, and then, you know, the U.S. basically goes, look, China is spending this much on defense. We need to spend this much more. They're uh, increasing their nuclear warheads by this much. Uh, we also need to increase uh, and so forth. And so there's a lot of back and forth. I, yeah, this happens on a yearly basis. I remember it's already been a year since we last talked about this. Uh, in the meantime, President Yoon Sagara will be co-hosting the uh, second summit for democracy, uh, along with uh, U.S. President Joe Biden and uh, a few other world leaders in March next year. Now, during the talks, new initiatives aimed at restoring democracy across the world are expected to be announced. Tan, uh, first of all, uh, tell us what this summit is all about. Well, it's a summit initiated by U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, it was initiated just about a year ago, aiming to respond to the deteriorating democracy, according to him, and to the rise in authoritarianism. 
during the inaugural meeting that took place in December last year. Heads of state from over 110 countries took part, touching upon agendas such as anti-corruption, anti-authoritarianism, and human rights. The first meeting uh, yielded more than 700 pledges to defend and strengthen democracy through collective efforts at home and abroad. And President Jun sung yeol will co-host the second summit in March next year, along with President Biden, as well as leaders of the Netherlands, Zambia and Costa Rica, who will represent Europe, Africa and Latin America, respectively. The aim of the second summit is to check on the progress being made on the pledges made during the first summit and to announce new initiatives aimed at carrying on the momentum to restore democracy. According to a joint statement released by the five co-host countries, the second summit will, quote-unquote, demonstrate how democracies deliver for their citizens and are best equipped to address the world's most pressing challenges. The statement also wrote that uh, from wars of aggression to changes in climate, the world is witnessing how democracy needs champions at all levels. It also said the summit will demonstrate how transparent and accountable governance remains the best way to deliver lasting prosperity, peace, and justice. The presidential office said South Korea's hosting of the event will offer an opportunity to continuously expand the nation's horizon of value diplomacy by sharing its democratization experience and anti-corruption efforts with the international community. The second summit for democracy will assemble world leaders in a virtual plenary format on March 29th, followed by regional hybrid gatherings that will bring together representatives from government, the civil society, as well as the private sector. Korea is set to preside over an Indo-Pacific regional meeting on the theme of anti-corruption. And other news, uh, Prime Minister Han Duk-su attended the uh, 171st General Assembly of the Bureau International de Exposition, or uh, the BIE, right, uh, to deliver a presentation on South Korea's bid to host Busan Expo 2030. We've been talking about this all year. Uh, BTS, of course, uh, also promoting and pushing for Busan to be able to host this as well. Uh, Mia, tell us more about the Prime Minister's efforts to add support to the Expo during his uh, trip to Europe there. Yes, so Prime Minister Han delivered a presentation on South Korea's bid to host the Expo at the 171st General Assembly of the BIE, which is an intergovernmental body in charge of overseeing the Expo in Paris, and appealed to members of the BIE to promote hosting the 2030 World Expo in Busan. Prime Minister Han's presentation featured South Korean pop culture, including K-pop sensation BTS and the movie Parasite and the series Squid Game. Now, just to give you more insights on why the government is putting its utmost efforts to host the Expo and why we are talking about this so much is that Expo actually helped to boost the host country's public image and national prestige. And on a more practical level, uh, hosting the Expo is expected to bring huge economic benefits, especially in creating jobs and boosting tourism. South Korea estimates that hosting the 2030 World Expo will generate a massive 661 trillion won and create 500,000 jobs. The 43 trillion won worth of production induced from this expo is four times that generated by the 2002 World Cup and two times the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Now back to our Prime Minister's business trip to France. The Prime Minister will travel to Mozambique 
Mozambique on Wednesday, which is today, for a two-day visit and meet with officials there to discuss expanding cooperation between the two countries. From Thursday, Prime Minister Han will pay an official visit to Ghana for three days and also meet with officials there to discuss ways to increase um, business and other cooperation. In both African nations, the Prime Minister is, of course, going to expect it to continue to push for support for Korea's bid to host the 2030 World Expo. Let's move on to uh, other news here. Uh, the big thing that uh, many uh, major economies have been doing is uh, pumping up their space industry. Uh, China, having successfully launched a Senzu, uh, 15 crewed spacecraft, three Chinese astronauts aboard, uh, successfully docking at uh, China's own Tiangong Space Station there. Uh, they're going to be on a six-month mission to finalize the country's operation of the Tiangong Station. Tana, tell us more about this. Right. Three Chinese astronauts blasted off for the Tiangong Space Station on Tuesday and made a historic in-orbit gathering with three others who arrived earlier in June on Shenzhou 14 spacecraft. The Shenzhou 15 crewed spacecraft successfully docked with the Tianhe core module at Tiangong on Wednesday, and the entire docking process took about six and a half hours. This marked China's first in-orbit crew handover, and the Tiangong station will be the second permanently inhibited space outpost after the NASA-led International Space Station from which China was excluded in 2011. This is the last of 11 missions required to assemble the Tiangong station uh, that is expected to operate for around a decade and run experiments in near-zero gravity. The outgoing crew is expected to return to Earth early next month after a week-long handover period. A spokesperson for the China Manned Space Administration said the new crew would focus on installing equipment and facilities around the space station. Uh, construction is expected to be complete by the end of the year. China's space program has previously landed robotic rovers on Mars and the moon, and it was the third country to put humans in orbit. And uh, staying with China, former President Jiang Zemin has died at the age of 96, according to a Communist Party announcement issued by uh, the Chinese state media just a few hours ago. Uh, he suffered from leukemia for quite a long time and uh, has been undergoing treatment until the moment his until the moment of his death. He presided over a decade of meteoric uh, meteoric economic growth in the post Tiananmen era from 1993, uh, and is widely recognized as the leader who guided China into the the global market. He's also uh, well known as the successor of Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, that's right. I believe he was uh, in office from 1989, right after the Tiananmen. And square uh, crackdown, right? And, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of remember as some kind of uh, the president to stabilize China uh, after the, uh, the Tiananmen Square uh, protest there. Not to mention, I mean, it's kind of shortly after that that China really, uh, you know, when it became, uh, you know, at the forefront of a, a massive global growth, uh, economic growth uh, in the world stage there. So 96 years old. 
Uh, and uh, this news, of course, uh, just coming in uh, even less than an hour before our show started off here. Uh, guys, let's move on to other news here, this time uh, continuing actually with uh, space-related news. Uh, a Japanese company called iSpace is getting ready to launch its first spacecraft funded and built by a private firm to land on the moon. Uh, this was scheduled to uh, at uh, Korea time, uh, 5.39 p.m., so just right, right before our show kicked off here. Uh, Mian, do we have any updates on this? Yes, no, iSpace's Hakuto R Mission 1 now scheduled to lift off from Space Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station at 5.39 p.m. Korean time. Now, I've checked just before I came in, but the coverage isn't made yet, so we will soon find out whether this has been mm. successful or not. But back to the mission, this actually has been more than a decade in the making. The company behind the mission, iSpace, began in Japan as a competitor in the Google Lunar X Prize. The goal of this particular X-Prize was to become the first private lunar exploration mission. Uh, iSpace decided to call the mission Hakuto, which means White Rabbit in Japanese. In 2015, the team reached a major milestone, completing a successful rover demonstration. And just two years later, the team had a flight-ready rover at its first launch site. However, the primary spacecraft did not fulfill its part of the mission. And then in 2000. 2018, the mission was revived as Hakuto R and the R standing for Reboot. It will consist of a series of missions to the lunar surface, and once it arrives at the moon, it will spend about two weeks in orbit with each circle around the moon taking it closer to the surface. Finally, if all goes well, it will land swiftly in an area called Atlas Crater, and if successful, Japan will become the fourth country successfully landing on the moon after the US, Russia, and China. You know, we've been getting a lot of these like space-related news. Uh, you know, we talked about like uh, Tanuri. We talked about uh, uh, all these other space programs that are happening. South Korea also pushing. Uh, President Yoon Sagar earlier this uh, week, right? Uh, he was talking about the the future of the space economy and how uh, he wants to set up a uh, sort of uh, like equivalent to the space force over in the United States, like NASA. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he said he wants to stick a Korean national flag on the surface of. Mars in 2045. <laughs> oh, it was Mars. Yeah. Oh, that I mean, that's uh, this <laughs> in 2045. 2045. Which oh, that's right. That's this is when I I had to calculate how old I'll be uh, by then, <laughs> and uh, it was also because uh, something like a hundredth anniversary of the liberation right. of uh, Korea was what he was trying to mark there. But uh, it's it's over the past a year or so, there's just been so much push for the space program, not just uh, you know Japan. We talked about China just now, uh, South Korea has been aiming for that the United States has been kind of going for that for the longest time and you know you know over in the United States they're going a different route where they're talking about space tourism is what they're uh, talking about here. Polina Maldonado saying, I'm loving all this news about space. Well, I mean, we might be hearing more about uh, space news moving forward here. But uh, nevertheless, guys, thank you as always for your reports today. As always, uh, please stay safe and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.